Good morning. If you haven't met me, my name is Damien. I'm a member of the church here. Um, high school teacher. Um, can I encourage you, if you have a Bible there, to have it open uh, to Matthew chapter 12, because uh, I'm going to be looking through the whole chapter. Uh, and let me just pray for us. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work uh, this morning, um, showing us the wonder of your word and the wonder of your son. Uh, we pray that uh, we would hear, um, hear your word, that we would see your signs, that we would know uh, your son and that we would be encouraged. Uh, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, our passage this morning begins with another conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. So if you have a look with me at verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Uh, and in asking for a sign, the Pharisees are really asking Jesus to show some credentials. Uh, and so at first glance, that seems pretty reasonable. Jesus has been making some big claims. Jesus is asking people to follow him. And so it's good to ask, well, who are you? What's your authority to be saying this stuff? Uh, and these kinds of questions happen all the time. So if a driver of a car gets pulled over by the police, it's pretty reasonable for the policeman to say, can I see your license? Show me your credentials that you can drive this car. Or often in the news, um, you hear of CEOs being paid tens of millions of dollars and the company's not doing very well and you, you want to ask the question, show me your credentials. Like, why do you get to be paid all of this money? Um, and so the Pharisees are asking Jesus for a sign. Uh, is it reasonable? Jesus doesn't think so. So have a look at Jesus' response in verse 39. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Wicked and adulterous asking for a sign. Jesus is immediately angry at this line of questioning. So what, what's going on? I, I actually love noticing these little jarring moments uh, in the Bible because they, they make me want to work a bit harder. They make me want to read the text with a bit more focus to better understand what's going on. And so, I, and I think most helpfully, it makes me want to look at the context. What's been happening that's led up to this point? What is going on that Jesus responds with, with such aggression? Well, if you've, if you've been listening, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, has been working through Matthew, uh, you would know that there's actually been lots of scuffles between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus has been showing signs and answering their questions. Uh, and so if you come back with me to uh, chapter 12, verse 2, you'll see that they question Jesus' use of the Sabbath. Um, and after some discussion, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. So in verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And then if you come down to verse 22, you see that Jesus heals a demon-oppressed, blind and mute man. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that they could, he could both talk uh, 
talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? You see, Jesus has been performing miraculous signs. And if we consider even wider the context, if you go back to chapter 11, so if you move back there, you actually hear John the Baptist asking Jesus about his identity. And so in chapter 11, verse 2, um, we read, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he said to his he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, deaf, uh, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. See, John himself is asking the question, Jesus, who are you? And Jesus' answer is, well, look at the signs and the miracles, because the signs and the miracles attest to who I am. And so if we come back to our passage this morning, to the questions that the, the Pharisees are asking, they're saying, show us a sign. The problem is not asking for some evidence of who Jesus is. See, the evidence of Jesus' power is there for everyone to see. No one has been able to deny Jesus' power to heal and to teach and to restore. No, the problem here is that it's not a genuine question. The Pharisees don't really want to know. The Pharisees just want to put Jesus in his place. And see, the world doesn't really want to know either. The world wants to just see Jesus as a nice guy. He's a good teacher. You know, he's some irrelevant person in history. You don't really need to know him. Now, I'm, most of us, as we read this and as we listen... We're not like the Pharisees. Like, so we didn't come to church this morning to try and put Jesus in his place. Um, and so this feels a bit like that classic example, which happened to all of us, I'm sure, at school, when there were students misbehaving and the teacher was getting really, really annoyed. But, you know, you were there doing your work, working away, and then the teacher gets fed up and says, you all have to stay back, all right? You've all got to stay back. And then the teacher drones on and on about behaviour and you're just sitting there thinking, this is not about me. Like this, the teacher's talking to someone else. Um, and so Jesus rebuking the disciples, well, what, I didn't come here to put Jesus in his place. So what's this going to say to me? What should I expect to learn from this passage? Because like, I'm, I'm happy for Jesus to rebuke, sorry, the Pharisees. Um, but it's actually helpful so that we can come to understand what this does have to say to us, is to step back and to notice a pattern that's happening in this, in this chapter. Uh, so Matthew's actually structured this in a way, and I think it's a pretty simple pattern, and it occurs four times. Uh, and the pattern is this. First, there is a clash. There's this conflict. Then there is this correction, where Jesus will correct the wrong thinking, and then thirdly, Jesus will extend uh, the wrong, will give an extension where he's going to use this issue to teach deeper and more significant truths. So come back with me and let me can show you the pattern that I think I can see here. Uh, and so if we come back to verses 1 to 8, 
the conflict is over the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. Uh, And Jesus corrects the Pharisees' teaching, I mean the Pharisees' thinking, by pointing to examples from history. He says, well, David ate consecrated bread and the priests, they work on the Sabbath. But then Jesus goes further and he extends their understanding and he extends our understanding and he teaches deeper truths. And so in that section, we learnt that Jesus is greater than the temple. And we're encouraged to reflect that God's desire is for mercy above sacrifice. Uh, And then we're also shown that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And then the pattern repeats. And so in verses 9 to 21, uh, this time Jesus initiates the conflict. And he asks the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then he, he answers his question. He corrects their understanding by pointing out that even a trapped sheep deserves to be healed on the Sabbath, I mean, rescued on the Sabbath, and so surely people are more valuable than sheep. Uh, And then in this section, Matthew provides the extension to our understanding, and he quotes Isaiah at length, which gives us this great portrait of God's servant. And so two weeks ago, Paul helpfully showed us that there's this depth here. God is not interested in the appearance of doing good, He came to do real good. It's not just keeping up appearances. In Jesus, we see a real servant who came to do real good uh, in the world. And then last week, in verses 22 to 37, I think that the pattern repeats again. The conflict is about Jesus' ability to heal and drive out demons. The Pharisees accused Jesus of using uh, the power of demons And so then again, we see that Jesus corrects their thinking. He says, your logic doesn't make sense. And he teaches them that um, a kingdom divided against itself will fall. But then Jesus extends it and deepens the ideas. And he says, you know what? If my power is not from the devil, but I can heal and drive out demons, that means that God's kingdom has come among you. I am the strong man who's come. I am able to defeat the work of the devil. And then Jesus flips the question on the Pharisees and he says, if you're calling the work of God the work of the devil, whose side are you on? And if you're rejecting God's spirit, who's given the truth uh, about my work, well, then that's, that's an unforgivable sin because you're rejecting God's means of salvation. And so we come back to our passage this morning, but now we actually have a helpful structure to unpack it. There's going to be conflict, there's going to be a correction, but then Jesus is going to extend those ideas. And so the conflict is the Pharisees asking Jesus for a sign, which we've seen is the Pharisees just trying to put Jesus in his place. The correction I think, is Jesus putting the Pharisees in their place. Um, So have a look with me again at verse 39. Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what is this sign of Jonah? Jesus goes on to be more specific. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
See, we all know the story of Jonah and the whale. It's a miracle story. Rebellious Jonah is doomed to die in the depths of the sea until God comes to rescue him. Jonah deserves to die. Jonah can't do anything to save himself and God does this miraculous work and brings a miraculous rescue. And actually, the whale rescue is just the dramatic action sequence of the bigger Jonah story, which is that God in his kindness sends a reluctant prophet to an ungodly, wicked city of Gentiles so that he can warn them. And then the city repents and God saves them. And then Jesus connects this story to his upcoming death, three days in the tomb and resurrection. And it's not hard to connect the dots. Three days in the whale, three days in the tomb. This is not a difficult detective novel we're dealing with here. God is sending his prophet, his son, um, to die, to do the miraculous work of dying on the cross to bring about a great salvation. This is the sign that is on offer for the Pharisees. This is the sign that is on offer for us. And Jesus' corrective continues. So if you look at verse 41 and 42. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Um, this, uh, in the last couple of weeks, Ben showed me a YouTube clip uh, of, a, of a father and a young son. The young son was about seven or eight going fishing. And so you see in this clip... Uh, they've got their fishing rods, they're walking, they're heading towards the lake to go fishing and they come across this sign, this big no fishing sign and it's a classic no fishing sign. There's a big red circle with a line through it and there's this little figure with a fishing rod sitting on a box fishing and it's like no fishing. And you see the father asks the son, son, can you read that sign to me? And the son looks at it and says straight away, no fishing while sitting. And then the father says, and son, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be standing while we're fishing. And off they go and they go to fish. And it's, it's actually, it's really quite funny. But it, it just makes this point that it doesn't matter how clear the sign is. If you don't want to read the sign, you won't read the sign. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, stop playing games with me. Stop asking about signs. The signs are everywhere. The ungodly pagan Ninevites repented at the preaching of measly Jonah. And you think you can get away with ignoring me, God's son, doing miracle after miracle in your presence and in a few days going to the cross. This is not about Jesus needing to give a clearer sign. This is about the Pharisees and do they want to read the signs that they've been given? And what about us? Have we read the signs? Have we responded to the signs uh, that we have been given? Um, and then so we come to the last section in verses 43 to 45 and then 46 to 50. And just like before, 
I think Jesus is extending his argument. He's going to, he's going to push this further and reveal uh, some deeper truths. Um, it's been a sad week in the Jenner household, uh, and I apologise to those who don't follow the football, uh, but Wednesday night, New South Wales lost the state of origin. The Jenner household were devastated. Um, but one interesting thing that came out of it, because we were watching all the commentary, was this question of, do the Queenslanders love their jersey more than the New... <laughs> more than... <laughs> more than... More than the New South Wales people. And, like, so how much... And the, the, this discussion went on, that, like, the, the Queensland jersey seems to be this magical thing, that they just love it. All right? And, and more passionate. That's right. Um, and so and so the one Queenslander responds, and all of us New South Wales people just sit there. Um, I, but I think, I actually think this is, this is the idea Jesus is going to go with. How deeply embedded are you in Jesus' tribe? I think that's where he's going. And so let's read on. Uh, when an impure spirit comes out of a person... It goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in good order. Uh, then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation." Uh, at first reading, this passage seems really strange. Um, but let me draw some threads together. First, the Pharisees have asked for a sign, but Jesus has flipped this question on its head and he's basically argued, more important is the judgment day when you'll be asked about how you've responded to the signs that you've been given. So let's stop talking about me and let's start talking about you and your response. Second, Jesus has shown himself to be the master of the spiritual and physical realms. He's been able to drive out demons, heal the blind and mute man. Third, uh, in last week's passage, Jesus presented himself as the strong man who plunders the enemy's house. That is, I think, he can come and do a rescue job on a person's life. He can drive out uh, evil, he can drive out Satan, he can heal. And now, in this passage, he's talking about a house that's been cleansed of evil, but it remains unoccupied, and it will be worse off if nothing changes. So, surely Jesus' warning here, in these verses is don't do a half job of following me. Don't let me in the front door, but leave me in the foyer. There were plenty of people in Jesus' day like this, following Jesus for the free food, following Jesus for the healing, following Jesus for the good teaching, or worse still, being a teacher of the law where you thought you were following Jesus, but you weren't listening to God's Son. And... and this is a warning for our day too. It's very easy to be a cultural Christian. You've, you've grown up in a Christian family or you live in, like a, it's like you live in a, um, an area where people go to church 
Or in my kind of line of work, working in a Christian school, lots of people think, well, I come to a Christian school, then surely I'm a Christian. I know bits and pieces about Jesus. Surely that makes me a Christian. Um, but Jesus is saying here, no, it needs to be all. Like if, if it's not all, then it's nothing at all. Um, but then in verses 46 to 50, Jesus goes on and reveals something amazing for those of us who have seen the signs correctly and responded rightly to him. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, a few years ago, for my 40th birthday, my extended family uh, bought our family season passes to Wet n Wild. I shared this story at uh, 8.30 and asked them if they've been to Wet n Wild, but probably not. <laughs> um, uh, but it was great. So we got these season tickets to Wet n Wild and we loved it. We went lots and lots of times. Great fun on the, on the water slides. It was excellent. But there's one thing that I hated. So this is theme park. It should be fun. Um, and the thing that I hated was the VIP lines. And so I think in all the world, like the world is unjust and, you know, some people get away with things, other people don't. Surely at a theme park, we can all be equal. But no, if you have extra money, you can buy a VIP and jump to the front of the queue time and time and time again. And so I hate those VIP lines. I think Jesus is saying here, there are no VIP lines in his family. Those who trust in him, those who listen to Jesus are members of God's family. This is the great leveller. We can all be precious members of God's family. It's not about your wealth. It's not about your privileged position. Being up the front, giving the talk, doesn't bring you closer to God. Being able to sing beautifully is great, but it doesn't bring you closer to God. Having a long family history of Christians in your family is a blessing, but it doesn't bring you any closer to God. Jesus' actual physical brother who wandered around back in the day, Jesus' brother, was not considered any closer to God for being his brother. What brings us closer to God? It's seeing the sign of the signs that point to who he is. It's allowing him to be the ruler and the king. It's listening to the Father in heaven. That's the only thing. And it brings us all closely into the family of God. And that, I think, too, says something tremendous about how we treat each other and how we don't show favoritism. We are all have the same beautiful, wonderful access as the precious members of God's family. So let's pray and give thanks. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that your word teaches us the truth, uh, that warns us of things, but shows us the wonder that you have welcomed us into your family if we see your son aright, um, if we trust him as Lord and Saviour. And we pray that for all of us, uh, we would know the wonder of being in your family.
Um, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.